It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. Ashwath Rahman is one of the co-founders of a startup in Silicon Valley called SkyCool. It's a startup that is designed around injecting radiation well into the atmosphere in order to revolutionise uh, air conditioning. And um, I'm keen to hear a lot more about that. And he's joining us from California. Can you hear us, Ashwath? Uh, yes, I can. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. What we always love to start doing on this show to get a bit of a background on the people we speak to and really bring a, a human element to their journey. So maybe you could speak to us a bit about your, your personal history and what landed you where you are right now. Sure. So I'm actually Canadian, so I grew up mostly in Canada, but oddly enough, and perhaps I grew up around the energy industry in Canada, which is, of course, the oil sands uh, up in Alberta, because my father works uh, for one of the major oil companies there. So I've always had, I guess, energy and topics related to that in the back of my mind. I came to the United States for my college, uh, university and have stuck around since then. You know, early on, I've been someone who's always interested in the physics side of things. So I, you know, was contemplating pursuing somewhat more esoteric or shall we say more fundamental lines of research if I were to do a PhD. But when I started thinking about what I wanted to do with my life uh, and what motivated me, uh, I think the challenge posed by climate change uh, specifically from a technological point of view, was very interesting and meaningful. So around 2007, I began a, a PhD program in applied physics at Stanford, which is uh, where I'm still located. So Stanford is in the heart of Silicon Valley. And alongside you know, this entire ecosystem of tech startups, I decided to, I guess, spend more time thinking about the fundamentals of the physics and how it might actually have an impact on energy technology. If you've got a, you know, obviously an interest in, in the aspects of climate change and your father as, as an oil man, I can imagine there's been some interesting dinner time conversations. Sure. And in fact, he's been involved in the recent past in some major kind of CO2 sequestration projects. So he, he's actually, you know, he works for an oil company that has, I think, acknowledged climate change's reality for a long time and has worked on projects related to that for a long time as well. So in that sense, you know, thinking about efficiency and improving kind of CO2 output was actually a topic of dinnertime conversation from a very early age as opposed to the oil industry writ large. And I guess you're more focused on yeah, some of the physics and the scientific aspects rather than the, the moral and political aspects, which I think would manipulate a lot of the conversation that happens in the media. Certainly. And I, I think, you know, when I was growing up, I'm sure I was a little more argumentative than perhaps I am now. But for me, the reality of climate change and the challenges it poses to all of us uh, certainly has a moral moment. But given my own background and interests, I saw an opportunity to also contribute uh, on a scientific and technological level. 
Fantastic. Uh, you are at, at, at uh, Stanford University, as, as you mentioned. And for listeners that don't know, Stanford is, is the institution that ushered in the information revolution in many ways and is basically why Silicon Valley is where it is. A lot of the startup companies were formed by people who were, who were students there, who then formed their companies around that area. How does the history affect the, the psyche of the students and, and the staff there? Do they really have this whole feeling around it's not just about basic research, but applying it and creating companies and changing the world? Uh, for sure. It's it's a very unique environment. I'll, I'll say that much. I don't know that there are too many university and research institutions around the world that are so immersed in an environment where entrepreneurship is almost a given. Uh, it's almost even an expectation. Right. Uh, so often if you've completed uh, a degree program or you've been a student at Stanford and you haven't been involved in thinking about startups or working on one in your time there, someone might ask you, why not? Sure. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's exceptional in, that, in those terms. That said, it's also a place where a lot of more basic, non-commercially driven research does happen. And there are a lot of thinkers here who uh, also focus on the, the fundamentals and the science as well. And I think you know, it, it's, it's always a balance and it's a bit of a tension perhaps as well, which is that you know, there are oftentimes a lot of things we ask and the lines of inquiry one might have commercially relevant. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what are the, some of the, the practical ways? I mean, I think it, I think that sort of model is trying to be replicated all over the world, but what are some of the practical ways that, that Stanford would encourage that entrepreneurship? I know that a lot of the early days of, of IT was the fact that Stanford would allow students just to take their IP. So things that were developed at, at the university, they could just take it and start a business and the university wouldn't want a cut of that. Is, is that still very much the case? Stanford has always been uh, a pioneer in thinking about how universities should encourage the commercialization and the transfer of uh, work that happens uh, within the academic setting. Uh, in instances like you described where students might not have actively used significant university resources and may have only incidentally, you know, while they were on campus, uh, come up with an idea, you're right, uh, that they're often free to pursue uh, enterprises based on their ideas. However, in general, as with most universities, it does retain an interest in intellectual property that's developed as part of the, you know, the research mission of the university. So what you can say is certainly it makes it quite easy, I think, uh, compared to most other institutions to work with their offices of technology transfer. More generally, I, I think the, the bigger reason that Stanford has had such a successful history I think also has to do with the intangibles of this broader environment that immediately is at the boundaries of Stanford's, which is the rest of Silicon Valley. Uh, it's it's a cultural thing. It's it's also the fact that there's a lot of capital uh, for those seeking to start companies. But a, a lot of it is, I think, you know, uh, replicating it is tricky because it's not just about institutional policies, but about a broader environment and a and the culture that it happens to exist in Northern California uh, or has grown up here over the past five decades. And how has Stanford transitioned to a more to the, the more clean tech side? You know, it's, it's, it's famous for information technology, but how has it transitioned? And, and is there a lot of work being done on the clean tech side as well? Stanford actually, I think, has a fairly long history in this area. Uh, one uh, company that was founded by a former uh, Stanford professor of electrical engineering is SunPower, which is a major manufacturer of solar cells to this day. Uh, so there, there is certainly a history, and there has been a history on that particular side, which is solar cells and the semiconductors uh, related to solar cells. 
There, uh, in the last decade, certainly, uh, starting around the time I, uh, I came to Stanford in 2007, there has been a huge increase in interest in clean tech. And, you know, in the late 2000s in Silicon Valley to the early 2010s, there was also a significant amount of investment in uh, clean tech startups, many of which originated from either research at Stanford or uh, involved individuals uh, from the university. And that has had, uh, you know, some of them succeeded, some of them didn't. But I, I think the broader lessons from that has, for the university has been to ask, you know, how do we effectively think about the research that is done here, finding its pathway to market, given the amount of interest people have and given the motivations that a lot of governments and other regulatory agencies have when it comes to clean energy. This is, I think, still an evolving topic of uh, questioning. There are a lot of different models you find around the United States and around the world about how to do this. Uh, I, I suppose the single biggest factor uh, in understanding whether any of this has been successful so far is that it takes time. So uh, Arun Majumdar, who was the first head of ARPA-E, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which was a Department of Energy agency in the United States that funds high-risk and high-reward research, is now a professor at Stanford uh, after his tenure there. And he is, I think, actively thinking about the role of universities such as Stanford in fostering both knowledge transfer to future generations, but also thinking about knowledge transfer in the commercial sense when it comes to things like clean tech. It's very interesting. And, you know, we are, of course, going to get to to your technology, SkyCool's technology, and we spoke about it involving uh, radiation. But I, I think before we even get to that, we perhaps should get into a bit of uh, some of the physics behind that and in what context your technology is going to potentially be implemented. I wanted to, to first start and, and ask about the physics of the earth and, and the atmosphere and uh, what what are the, the thermal conditions as, as we ascend from the surface up to, up to space? At a simplest level, the atmosphere does get colder as we get closer and closer to space. There are some variations that can have a lot to do with uh, weather conditions and climatic conditions in the regions where you are. But at the simplest level, you can think of it as a, a gradient that goes from the uh, air temperatures we experience near the surface of the Earth all the way out to the uh, outer space itself, which sits at an extremely cold temperature of approximately uh, minus 270 Celsius. So that is one very simple way of thinking about it. Uh, another way to think about it uh, from the point of view of uh, us sitting here on the surface of the Earth is that as we look up to the sky, we are actually, uh, all of us, including uh, individuals and all the objects that are around us, for the most part, are sending out a lot of heat up to the sky. And this happens due to uh, an intrinsic physical phenomenon, which is that we all emit something called black body or thermal radiation. And that is a form of light associated with uh, our temperature. That's right. But I mean, a lot of the, you know, the original energy, of course, comes from the sun and the greenhouse effect is all about retaining some of that energy, which is what enables really life to exist. I, I, am I right in saying that if the Earth did not retain any heat, we would be sitting at around minus 15 degrees Celsius? Isn't that what was discovered back in the day? Uh, yes, that's correct. So if we didn't have some of the greenhouse effect that we do have, we would be much colder than we are right now. Okay. So... The sun's radiation hits the earth, and as you said, it radiates back out. But what are the different forms in which um, radiation leaves the earth? You know, there, I believe there is a difference between something that might just reflect right off and something that may be absorbed and then re 
re-emitted later on. Is there is there any practical difference between the two things, and and, and what effects do they have on in our in, in the thermal experience we have? Certainly, I think that has an impact on how much the surface of the Earth itself might heat up from radiation that is reflected uh, away from atmospheric layers versus uh, the amount of radiation that might be absorbed by intermediate atmospheric layers and itself re-emitted to further above and below. So uh, I think in practice, it's it's actually fairly complex. And there's been approximately, to the best of my knowledge, about 100 years worth of science on understanding what exactly happens with the light that we absorb from the sun, in addition to the lower temperature heat uh, that's associated with typical terrestrial temperatures and how that is uh, reflected away from certain layers of the atmosphere versus uh, going further above. Now, from uh, my point of view as a technologist, thinking about how to leverage it, to some extent, the details in a scientific sense don't matter too much. The, the main thing that matters is the fact that, say at night, if you were to look up to the sky and it was a clear night and you were at the same temperature as the air temperature, it turns out that you uh, sitting at the same temperature as the air temperature looking up at the sky would actually send more heat to the sky than you would get back uh, as a form of thermal radiation. And this has to do with the fact that the sky is not a perfect trapper of greenhouse uh, of thermal radiation. So it's not, it's not, it is not a 100% greenhouse effect. And that at the end of the day, the fraction of that heat that is not coming back to you while you're looking up at the sky is what enables uh, what we call the sky cooling effect, but it has also historically been called nocturnal cooling or radiative cooling. We're on the Beyond Zero show and we're speaking to Ashwath Raman from uh, Skycore and, and we're, we're, we're getting to the crux of it. We're getting to what what we want to get to regarding the, the technology and the Skycore technology and is radiative cooling, as you mentioned. And, you know, it, it makes complete sense to anybody just purely on a common sense level that it's it's cooler at night than it is during the day just simply because that radiation effect is happening away but is not being compensated with um, the radiation coming in. But plenty is still kept in and as, as someone who lives in Australia, we've had some really hot nights and it could stay hot like all the way until the early morning. And to that point, we may have days and days during a heat wave where we don't have, we don't get below below 10 degrees Celsius at all, or even below 15 degrees Celsius for three or four days at a time. And, you know, that's, that's one of the real scary things about climate change that, you know, the, this heat exhaustion could become a real issue because the, 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 the earth's not able to radiate that much energy out. Is that something that is um, that, that is seen, being seen as more of a problem around the world? I should clarify, I'm, I'm not an expert on the, the climate science side of things or uh, the atmospheric science uh, and weather phenomena necessarily. But to the best of my understanding, often when you see that much uh, heat being retained through the night, uh, part of that often has to do with humidity and cloud cover. So you will definitely see more of this kind of sky cooling or radiative cooling effect at night naturally from many surfaces and therefore the air adjacent to the surfaces uh, at night more when it's drier because water vapor is a greenhouse gas and also when you don't have as much cloud cover because clouds, it turns out, do absorb and essentially you can think of them as reflecting back a lot of this uh, upward thermal radiation. Therefore, the, the, you know, that's why you would see more of a cooling effect if it were either lower humidity 
or he had less cloud cover. I think it's generally true that people are concerned about you know, the existence of more and more heat waves that have more uh, extreme temperatures than have normally been observed. And all of this will certainly interact with each other to, to that end. So SkyTools technology is a lot about you know, leveraging that radiative cooling, but also during the day. So perhaps you could then now just introduce that to us and, and how you're able to achieve that kind of effect when the sun's still beating down. The only real challenge with achieving uh, radiative cooling or sky cooling during the day is that uh, the sun tends to heat up most natural materials that we might think of enough to completely uh, compensate for any cooling effect you might still get due to thermal radiation. So an important concept here is that the majority of the sun's energy is coming uh, at different wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation relative to the heat that we're, uh, we and most terrestrial objects uh, emit heat at. So um, in, in that sense, you know, sunlight is primarily in visible wavelengths, so light uh, wavelengths that we can all see. Uh, whereas the infrared radiation that we all emit uh, is in a regime that's often known as the mid-infrared. Now, this concept is important because what that means is that uh, these are actually two separate uh, wavelength regimes. So if one could design a material that very minimally absorbs sunlight over those visible and UV uh, wavelengths, but at the same time will continue to be a very effective radiator of heat, uh, over those mid-infrared wavelengths, the cooling effect we normally see at night could in principle persist during the day as well. So what our research uh, that we began here at Stanford starting in around 2013 showed was that it was in fact possible to design um, and create a material that had these properties. So to the naked eye, it looked like a very, very good mirror. So it, was a, um, it had greater than 97% uh, reflectance of sunlight. So it absorbed only a tiny fraction of the sun's energy. But at the same time, it was a very good emitter of its own internal heat uh, away as uh, thermal radiation in that mid-infrared regime. So what that allowed us to do uh, was demonstrate that this cooling effect that normally had only been observed at night could also be seen during the day. So this this radiation that you're speaking about, this, this mid-level infrared radiation, um, the name SkyCool is that you're actually, it's able to puncture through the, the usual uh, atmos atmospheric, you know, barriers, if you like, and go into the into the upper atmosphere where there is, where it is a lot cooler. Can, uh, what kinds of distances are we talking about that, that, that it's able to, to get to? That will depend uh, quite a bit on atmospheric. So uh, if it's extremely dry, we might uh, talking about uh, up to 50 plus kilometers uh, in, in the atmosphere. If it's a bit more humid, uh, effectively you might be looking at a colder point in the atmosphere. Now, as I mentioned, the, in, in scientific terms, it's actually a little more complex because uh, what often happens uh, is that there are several uh, absorption and emission events that to radiation that is going up from the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, you know, on a very technological level, all that really matters is the net balance of power that a sky-facing surface uh, 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 sees. So that uh, if it is able to emit more radiation out than it gets back from the atmosphere, 
uh, it can then cool itself. And once that balances out, that uh, that will be the temperature it settles at. And the hope is that that is substantially below air temperature. Okay. So, what kind of materials and how are they arranged, and how, how does how does this this magic happen? Our approach to doing this was very much from our own research background. So my, my PhD was in applied physics, and a lot of what I think about is uh, actually uh, a field that's historically been called optics and, and more recently has, the, has become known as photonics. So it's really thinking about how uh, through structuring uh, matter um, and uh, materials uh, at different length scales, we can have them interact with different wavelengths of light uh, or more generically electromagnetic radiation in uh, new and unusual ways. Given the amount of background and prior work that had been done in the field, we saw an opportunity to essentially by design construct uh, a, a multi-layer coating um, that could also be thought of as a composite material that uh, had these deliberate properties. So the, the materials we use are known as uh, semiconductor oxides. Um, so they're very, actually very commonly used already uh, all over the place. So one of them is titanium dioxide, which you will often find in paints. And the other is silicon dioxide, which is uh, a key constituent element, uh, sorry, compound in uh, glass. So uh, by arranging the thicknesses of these layers and the, comp the alternating nature of these layers, we were able to show that we could create something that had the requisite properties of being a very good mirror to sunlight while also being a very good radiator uh, to heat in that infrared uh, regime. Some of the uh, applications of the technology initially are around uh, thermal power plants and it is looking potentially to, to replace a lot of the water cooling that happens now and it's probably taking advantage of the you know evaporative cooling the, uh, aspects and, and how efficient that is when, uh, when you use water to cool and your technology could be used as a replacement for that. Could you give us a bit of an idea on how your technology would almost capture that heat and then be able to dissipate it? Well, one way to think about it is uh, you might construct panels uh, that have a very similar form factor to, say, a solar water heater, except using our, our surfaces, they would do the opposite. They would essentially be able to cool water below the ambient air temperature, and do this uh, essentially using thermal radiation as opposed to evaporation. Uh, what's really attractive there, as you point out, is that we don't need to evaporate the water, um, yet we can achieve uh, temperatures in the water below uh, the air temperature. And, uh, and that is part of the attraction when you think about very large-scale cooling systems. Uh, so uh, evaporatively cooled systems, uh, whether they're cooling towers on a, on a building or the cooling towers you see at thermal power plants benefit enormously from the fact that by evaporating the water, you can achieve uh, temperatures well below the air temperature. But the, the, the downside is you lose a ton of water in that process. Uh, in a lot of arid regions, uh, certainly in places in Australia and uh, also in the American West, there's now an interest in how we might be able to achieve that same effect without the water loss and without uh, any thermal water pollution as well. So by using the fact to cool water, uh, below the air temperature, we can at least achieve some component of what you might normally get with evaporation without the water loss, because it would be a completely closed uh, closed loop. Yeah, so there'd just be the heat exchange going on and it would go back around. That's very interesting. You also see the technology working in air conditioning systems for buildings. How would you retrofit this kind of thing into, into a HVAC system for an, for an existing building? We're exploring a range of potential options. 
when you think about very high efficiency buildings, so ones that might be going f uh, for net zero or uh, lead platinum certification, things like that, uh, you often find the use of uh, uh, radiant ceiling panels or chilled beams for air conditioning in buildings. Uh, what's nice about these systems is they use much higher temperature water. So you can actually imagine directly using uh, water cooling panels that use uh, our sky cooling effect to uh, supply water uh, that can be uh, good enough to do interior cooling using uh, these kinds of approaches, these very high efficiency approaches. And what's very interesting there is that in, in these kinds of scenarios, you can completely bypass the regular air conditioning uh, cycle and therefore completely cut out the electricity use associated with that. Uh, at this point, that remains uh, a relatively small market, and um, especially in the United States, you do find it much more commonly in Europe. More broadly, the bigger picture opportunity is to really have this work on the condenser side of any air conditioner or refrigeration system. And there, uh, essentially, by using the water from panels that have this property, uh, you might be able to more efficiently operate the air conditioning cycle by lowering the temperature at which the condenser is operating. So uh, this is essentially what one can accomplish using uh, evaporation and cooling towers, but it's often prohibitive for buildings because it's uh, expensive uh, and having water exposed to the environment often introduces a lot of maintenance costs. So th that's another uh, potential scenario. And principle, uh, it could be a, a technology that pairs uh, with any system uh, is in the in the in the industry called an air cooled condenser. That is any any kind of system you see out there where there's a fan blowing on some pipe that might have refrigerant on it. Uh, our panels could, in principle, pair with those to improve the efficiency of that system in this kind of modular and scalable way. Fantastic. Well, I think that might be a great place to leave it. We've gone into a lot of detail on on some of the the, the core uh, physics that is underpinning some of this stuff, and it's, it would be great to to see how how this technology gets applied. I know that when I first looked at it, I thought, well, let's just not just bother with human thermal comfort. Can we find a way to actually inject some of the heat that we're building all over that, that is being held in by the you know the exacerbation of the greenhouse effect all over the world, and perhaps use this technology just to cool the earth? I mean, I'm sure that's entered your mind as well but you know at this stage i'm guessing just from in terms of cost and and effectiveness you're looking at human-based applications at this point we are but it's certainly an interesting idea i think from an intellectual point of view and i have thought about it i, I think it's relatively underexplored relative to something say like solar geoengineering which has been uh, looked at or uh, cool roofs more generally and for good reason. I think people were right to focus on the solar component of what we might be able to do on the largest scales but I think there's now uh, an interesting opportunity uh, perhaps to at least think about it perhaps from an academic sense from a kind of knowledge generation point of view uh, as to whether that will we'll be able to do something at the very largest scales. My my focus on a, from a practical point of view is as you say, on the, at the building scale, where I think we can have an impact in the near term. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us today, Ashwath. Uh, thank you. We've been speaking to Ashwath Raman from Skycall, and you've been listening to the Beyond Zero show. My name's Anthony Daniel. We'll see you next time. It's not a product. It's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. 
all political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.